Um, I believe that really deserves a few thousand amens this morning, um, uh, along with uh, the, the, the song that Rex played for our um, offering. Um, I, just to know that God is on our side, just to know that, uh, that His eye is on us at all times for our good, for our watch. Um, but you just think about the words that we just sing, strongholds bowing to the Savior, right? That means whatever, whatever uh, fortress you may feel like you're locked in, no matter what you feel like has dominion over you, no matter what you feel like is just suffocating you, the, script, the, the song that we just sang, rooted in Scripture, proclaims that strongholds bow to the Savior, that resurrection power is available and within us over and against every circumstance that we face. I mean, I hope that you maybe as you sing those words just were uh, impressed on your heart. It is done. It is finished. Christ has won. He is risen. And the result is that grace is here. And that love has triumphed over death forever and ever. Mercy has won. And we're forgiven. So we can sing His praise forever. And we should sing it. And one day, we will join a chorus that will never, ever end. The implications of what we just sang are beyond supernatural. It's an incredible phenomenon when you consider the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, we just sang, it is finished. I mean, do you understand what that, that, what that is proclaiming, what that is saying? That He is risen, we're forgiven, and we're God's children. Like that, that, is the, that is what we just proclaimed, right? That is the promise that I hope that you didn't just sing about, I hope you know about, I hope you take with you, and I hope you always carry that and, 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 and allow that to influence you and define you, more importantly. Salvation is a done deal, therefore we aren't done for, right? Salvation is finished, it's completed, and we're reborn because of what Jesus did. That, that chorus comes from, uh, obviously, Jesus himself. When he went on the cross, this happened. He received the sour wine, and he said one Greek word, but what is translated, it is finished. He bowed his head, and he rendered his spirit. He gave up his life. It was not taken from him. He suffered under the weight and penalty of sin, and he gave his life up for you and for me, so that our lives could not be taken, so that our lives would not be lost, so that we would not be forsaken, so that we could be saved. The sour wine that was given to Jesus was a sort of cheap painkiller they would give crucified victims, but the wine stood for much more than that. In the Old Testament, the wine press is often an analogy for judgment. Uh, For someone to drink the dregs of wine, it was as if they were drinking for the wrath or the doom to come, as if it was the end. These metaphors in the, in the Bible are a symbol of the wrath of God against sin. And the Old Testament paints a grim picture of what will happen when the wrath comes against sin. And that happened to Jesus on the cross. Yet it was not the end of Jesus. It was the beginning of something spectacular. It was the beginning of what we have become a part of, the church As He went on to raise back from the dead, as we have been grafted into the family of God, Jesus took the glass and He turned it up. And as He welcomed the judgment that we deserve, He welcomed us into God's presence because salvation was paid in full. 
You might wonder, what does salvation mean? And it's a big subject, but what does it mean? It means, in short, that we have been reconciled to God. That you who were lost, you who had drifted far away, you who were taken far away, wherever you are, however you categorize your condition as, 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 as away from God, you who were far away from God were brought near to God because God came near to you. You who were a lost soul became a found child of God. We can call God our Father because Jesus finished His work. It is finished should be our anthem because it speaks of our new beginning in Him. And, and really this builds off what we began to discuss last week and what is going to be a couple of weeks uh, study in Colossians. If you want to find your place there in Colossians that we'll be reading um, in just a few minutes. But we began talking last week about how often in life we can feel pretty insignificant. We can feel pretty forsaken, right? Maybe you felt completely forsaken before. Often in life, we feel like that we're undone, that something's missing in our hearts, in our lives, and we can decide, we can theorize that it's this and it's that, and if I just got that, and if I just get to go there, and if I just met them, we can theorize what is missing, but the Bible tells us that what is missing is that we have a hole in our heart because of our separation from God. We have a hole in our souls that is there because of sin, and we have a separation from God at birth, but the cross and the work of Jesus bridges that gap. It reconciles that divide and it brings us into God's presence and it brings Jesus into our hearts. That's the gospel. And the hope that we began to discover last week is that insignificance finds favor. Forsaken receives adoption and we are complete and can be complete in Him and only in Him. Colossians 1 paints with broad brushstrokes the full picture of what Christ came to do, not just for us, but really for all of creation. The text underscores the difference between lost and found, forsaken and adopted, empty and complete, with vivid and clear contrast. If you'll recall, back in verse, chapter 1, verse 13, the Scripture says that, that Jesus delivered us from darkness. So that means that we were completely uh, uh, in the dark, as in we could not find our way out on our own, that Jesus shined a light to us, and He shines that to us every day. It suggests how vast the divide there is between Jesus and those apart from Him. It goes on to say that Jesus... Um, is the preeminent sovereign over all of creation, that He is before all things and He is in all things and all things exist because of Him. But the Scripture tells us back in chapter 1, verse 21, that we were alienated and we were in hostility to God because of sin. That we, uh, describe, the Bible describes us as hostile and as separate from God apart from Jesus. So if anybody ever says, hey, how important is Jesus to this whole salvation thing? He is fundamental to it, right? And, and, you know, is Jesus just a way, right? No, He is the way because apart from Jesus, the Scripture tells us that we are hostile and we are alienated from God. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, cure, His resurrection cures what was cursed. He redeems what was wrecked. He completes what was left undone. And Colossians serves as a sort of a cornerstone in the New Testament. It's our foundation as Christians in that it details that Christ is the key to completion for all of creation, from the cosmos to the whole universe to our characters. 
You don't need me to tell you how or detail to you how fallen our world is. Uh, The signs of wear and tear are everywhere. The symptoms of brokenness and darkness are all over the place. You know and we feel the effects from the internal battles of depression to external devastation and destruction all around from the things that we worry about, the way the world works, the hostility and the vapidness in our world is almost palpable. And we can turn on the news, we can walk down the street, we can just live in anywhere, wherever we go, we can experience the separation from God in real time, can't we? Even if we're the only person in the room, we can experience it for ourselves. In more ways than one, no matter how much we try to repair and refill ourselves, we are constantly losing and being emptied of life and energy. But the good news of Colossians, the good news of the Bible, the good news of Christianity is that Christ has worked to reverse this and resurrect us, to reconcile the world unto Himself. And one day, one day the entire cosmos, one day the whole universe will be recreated. But until that day, God is redeeming creatures like us. One soul at a time. Preparing us for a better day, a better world, a better age to come. One day all things will become new. But in the meantime, God is reconciling the world one adoption at a time. Our completion begins with our Father. Your completion begins with your Father. Those simple words that we learned that were so important last week. Those simple words that should begin every prayer. Those simple words that should begin every thought and every day. Our Father, who yes, He is in heaven and hallowed and sovereign and glorious, but He is also so close and so personal that Jesus taught us we can simply say Abba or Daddy and have His ear. Our worldview, our philosophies, our ideologies, our theologies all shift at the notion of our Father. It redefines the way we see the world, the way we act in the world. Whatever strongholds have a grip on you, whatever clouds seem to be overshadowing you, whatever hole that you seem to be in that is getting deeper, there is relief found in our Father, and there is no relief found anywhere else. The world may say you're stuck. The world may attempt to convince you that there is relief found by playing its rules, but our Father has something to say to that. Our Father assures that there will never that we will never face anything without grace and our Father promises mercy for even the worst days. And I don't know what you're going through. And we don't know what anybody else is going through but ourselves. But I can promise you this and the Bible promises us this and God as our Father promises us this. You might face something that you never expected tomorrow but you will not face it without grace. And you may come up against the worst case scenario tomorrow, but the mercy of God will be there for you. It will be there around you. You will not be on your own. Romans 8 verse 21 speaks this promise over us. It's so powerful. 
Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know what that's saying? That if you're a child of God, you are on the road to redemption, not just in the salvation in our souls, right? But in this entire idea of the world being recreated and the idea of what is broken is being built back. What has fallen apart is being raised up. And creation, the Scripture says, will be set free. The bondage will be done away with. And we can begin to experience the first fruits of that no matter what we face. There is grace no matter what we go through. There is mercy. We are no longer slaves. The world wants you to think that there is no other option but to suffer and but to, to dread and to fear and to give up. The world wants you to look yourself in the mirror and say that I am stuck like I am and there never will be anything that can make things better for me. The world wants you to be convinced that you are a slave to a system that you will never be bought out of. But we have been reminded by our Father that we are no longer slaves. We are free. We are free in Him. We are found in Him. Paul builds off of these promises in this next chapter. He writes to Colossae with hopes to knit their hearts together in love, to offer them assurance and insight into God's plans for their lives. And come on, it would do us all so good. How different would our world be if every day we dwelt on these things? This is my Father's world. I am a child in my Father's house. I know my Father's heart. How different would every day be if you started off like that? You are a child in the kingdom of God, in the family of God. When you get out of bed, it's like you're getting out of bed in your father's house because he is living and ruling and reigning over you. He's just around the corner. What if we got it every day and we said these simple yet profound words that would free our souls. I am found. I am free. My Father favors me. What if you started every day like that? You say, well, Justin, this is, you know, what is this? Just self-help, you know, convince myself things are okay. I'm not trying to convince you anything. I'm trying to tell you that the Scripture is saying to you that, the, that God, our Father, favors us. That in Him we are found and in Him we are free. So let's just practice. I don't know, maybe your day started off rough, but it's just 11.30, so it can get better. So how about it? I am found. I am free. My Father favors me. Me. I'll share that with other people, right? Because that me is not just me, right? It's all of us. That's an incredible privilege to, for us to be able to cling to and hold to. We don't deserve it. But God, nonetheless, has given it. You hear that? He has given it. He didn't just lock it away and say, good luck finding it. He has given it to us. And if we only believe it, we receive it. Look at chapter 2, verse number 6, as we begin this new study today. Paul says, As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus, so what is that telling us? We have been given a gift. 
We have received, we've we've spent our opening few minutes unpacking what we have received from Jesus. Favor, adoption, and freedom in a world where we often find ourselves facing many negative, disabling emotions. We feel insignificant and we feel forsaken. Jesus went to battle for us. And the Scripture says that in salvation we have received Jesus Christ the Lord as in the Lord of the universe. Colossians 1 told us that all things were made by Him and for Him. It went on to say that things were remade or going to be remade by Him and through Him. We're reminded that He defeated everything that fights against us so that we could definitively find ourselves in Him. You hear that? He defeated everything that fights against us so that we not just could find ourselves or find an option of ourselves, but that word definitive means decisively and with authority. As in, aha, this is what I was made for. This is who I was made for. This is why I was made by Him and for Him and through Him. That's what salvation means. You receive Jesus and you understand, wow, this is why I'm here. It all makes sense now. Adoption, recreation, redemption, access to God. Paul says, since you have received Christ, I pray that you therefore receive all that comes along with Him. So what is that commandment there in verse number 6? So, walk in Him. So, as you have received Jesus, He says, you should walk in Him. But He goes on. Rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Now, walk here is being, uh, being kind of defined or fleshed out by what comes in verse number 7. It says we are rooted and built up, established, and therefore we are overflowing with worship. Now here's a little bit of insight about this verse. Walk, the, the, the word behind walk is an imperative. It's commandment. It's a word that is simply not speaking of taking a stroll down the road, but it can actually be translated to live out. It speaks of how we conduct our lives. So when you see the word walk here, don't just think, oh, he's talking about going on a walk. He's talking about living our lives. He's talking about moving forward as as in we have received salvation. We have been made brand new and we can't stand still. We won't stand still. We have been made somebody that we were meant to be and God is calling us and moving us forward. So literally the word walk means to walk and complete our circuit, to fulfill our course. So I want you to see what Paul is doing here. He's basically saying to us, as you have received Christ, so find and realize your true self in Him and live it to the fullest. So you're not going to remain the same if you have received Jesus. You can't remain the same. Paul eschews a passive life as a Christian. He calls for a purposed and a committed devotion. But notice in verse number 7, there are four words that modify or define what it means to be alive in Christ. 
or define what it means to have been given this new life in Jesus. In verse number 7, you can almost pick them out yourselves, I'm sure, but the word rooted, the word built up, the word established, and the word abounding or overflowing all speak to the impact that Christ has had on us and what it means to be alive in Him. These four words are in form and intense that tie them to this commandment to live and to walk. As in, they are attachments that come along with the gift of new life in Christ. As in, they are part of the package deal that it comes with being saved. And Paul tells us in verse number 6, this is what you have received in Christ. And in verse 7 he says, this is what comes along with it. Now the first three are pretty similar, aren't they? Rooted, built up, established. Now, you might can get the, the drift that there's kind of an upward direction of those, isn't there? There's sort of a, a, we're building towards something, right? From the ground on up. They all convey a message, though, of security and stability. These all modify the verb to walk in that they remind us that God is working in and through and around us to enable us and to cause us and to lead us. Now really English renders these words too static, but they can literally be translated in a way that suggests they are happening or that they have happened. So let me kind of show you how you maybe a better way to read these words. Having been rooted, being built up, being or going to be strengthened. You understand kind of what Paul is trying to say here? You have been made alive in Christ. And what that means is you have been rooted and nobody can cut those roots. You are secure and you are established as a new creature. And going from there, you are going to be built up and you are going to be strengthened. And this is so freeing. If we get this, and I don't care how contrary to nature this might seem, this is what the Word is saying to us today. You becoming the person God wants you to be does not rest in your ability. It does not rest on your shoulders. It is not up to you to measure up. This verse tells us that our realizing what it means to be alive in Christ is up to us trusting God. The work that God is trying to do in and through and around you completely relies on sensitivity to and trusting in Him. Paul tells us that we have all that we need to be able to realize this. To realize this, we are in Him. This text offers a past, present, and future look at what it looks like. God has planted us in Christ. He is building us through Christ. He will strengthen us with Christ. So who is the one doing the heavy lifting? God. He has planted us. He is building us. He will continually strengthen us. God is doing the hard part. Again, these are being done to us by God. In fact, the very commandment to live calls back to what salvation really means and says to us. It speaks of being raised from the dead as in we weren't alive before. And we have been alive, made alive in Christ. 
Dead people can't hear someone say anything, right? Only resurrected people from that point can. And if resurrection is not provided, graves are not vacated. What I'm saying is this, the commandment to walk isn't a call to try harder. It's a call to listen closer to the voice of God that is facilitating the impossible. Here's what Ephesians tells us about our salvation. You were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So that might be a little bit grim. But that's the truth of what it means to be apart from Jesus. We were dead in and because of our sins. He goes on in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. So it took and it takes a supernatural work of God to save us. Jesus, on one occasion, then the crowd when He said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know what that word literally means? It means to pull a sword out of the sheath. It means to unsheath a sword. It means to drag something. So the good news is that no matter how dead something is, God has resurrection power. The good news is that God is still speaking to graves. The only reason this might be bad news is if you're someone who believes, well, it's up to me and I'm going to do it my own way and I'm going to try harder tomorrow. There's no amount of try harder that's going to get you there. The Scripture says it takes God literally dragging us out of the grave. But nothing's impossible for Him. And this is literally how Jesus deals with one grave that you're all very familiar with. At a funeral, he attended late. When he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, the man who had died. Because why else would he be in a grave, right? The man who had died came out of the grave. Because that's what dead people do. They go into graves, right? But they don't come out of graves unless somebody says, hey, Lazarus, come out of that grave. That's the work of salvation over your soul. God says, insert name here, come out, and we, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, are brought back to life. Because guess what? Your soul might be bound to sin, but when God's supernatural power gets a hold of you, your soul perks its head up to a greater authority. And I don't care how far into sin you or somebody you love is, God is creator, and when the saving power of God moves in and begins to work over someone, He draws the authority. He ushers in the ability to save anybody. When we've been given resurrection life, this thing we've been attached to is supernatural, the source of eternal life that never ceases to flow in or out, to and through. We did not resurrect ourselves, and God doesn't expect us to sustain ourselves. He intends and is efficient in keeping alive those He raises from the dead. And before we move on, the only part of this equation that is on us is the last part of verse 7. 
Whereas rooted and built up and strengthened are things done to us by God. That last part, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Worship is the only thing that is left up to us in this equation. But the way it's printed here, it still is a natural response. And worship should be our natural response to God, but it remains a voluntary choice. Nobody's going to make you worship. That's why what's really telling when someone who thinks assembling for worship is just an option. It reveals that their heart is either still cold in sin or simply out of touch. A heart that's truly been resurrected by God, a heart that's been touched and changed by God, is going to overflow with praise. David wrote in Psalms 45, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. We who were dead are now alive. We who were buried are now raised. We who were detached are now attached. Thank God for worship leaders. Thank God for churches that lead us in this process, that teach us songs, that assemble us into the body of Christ where we are set apart for worship. Worship is not just entertainment. It's engaging. It's interacting with God alongside our fellow brothers and sisters. May we never downplay the vital role of worship. As a Christian, our most natural habitat is in a house of worship. And sometimes we feel out of place because we haven't made use of it as much. It's where our soul can actually speak the language it was designed for. And it's where we can hear what it longs for. Worship is our response to what we value the most. It's an opportunity for us to let our souls talk and our flesh be silenced. You know what? Our flesh tries to distract us from hunger to wandering thoughts to drowsy nods to fidgeting. Our flesh fights against this, but our souls fight for it. Your soul longs to worship. And this is important. We worship because, not to cause. We worship because God has done something, not trying to get Him to do something. We worship because God has come down, not to try to get Him to come down. God is not at, our, is not at the mercy of us worshiping hard enough. We worship because God has already poured Himself out and will always pour Himself out. So as you hear the Word, the Spirit tugs at you. This is what we need, the answer. that We should listen and surrender and sing. Worship ensures that our connection to our Father stays fresh and focused. Worshiping God makes walking with God much more natural. Worshiping God knits our hearts to what God has done and is doing and will do. Again, it makes us aware and conscience in tune with our new reality, our new nature. Jesus offered this analogy that you've all heard before. Abide in me and I in you as, in, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. Unless you abide. Unless you dwell. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And I don't take that as a threat. I take that as an encouragement. You can do all things with me, but apart from me you will be without strength. You know, you never see a tree or a seed-bearing plant straining, do you? I mean, you'll never walk by an apple tree and you hear something. What is that? Uh, you know. Right? And we're friends here. Right? You know, picking up something, you've picked up something heavy before, right? No, you try hard and you make that noise. I don't know why you make that noise, you just do, don't you? You'll never hear a tree or a flower. You know. I can't do it. I can't pick it up. A tree naturally bears fruit. Think about this. Again, think about how salvation is a gift. The gift of Christ. We were not reconciled by our own work. Our dedication, our sacrifice did not overcome this insurmountable hill of sin and death. It wasn't our unceasing effort. Salvation is received by faith in what Jesus did. And therefore, spiritual growth comes through faith in what He is doing and what He can do. Believing that God will do as He promised, we don't work it up. We trust God who has rooted us to build us up continually and strengthen us. There is freedom in arriving at this place. There is freedom in resting at this place. And that's why verse number 8 warns us. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or an empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Jesus. You could almost rephrase that. See to it that no one spoils the gift. See to it that no one plunders the treasure. Literally the word there. Plundering ship cargo. See to it that no one takes, attempts you to take things into your own hands. The example Paul gives philosophy, which is just man's wisdom. Paul calls this empty deceit or emptying deceit, attempting and, and, and trying to forfeit what God is doing. And it's going to blow your minds how, com- how not how complex this next part is, but how subtle the deceit can be and how simple the solution can be. Paul is telling us to resist facing life with our own wisdom, with our own ingenuity, with our own traditions, through the lens of how we naturally see things, perceive things, and filter things, or how we are taught or influenced to perceive and process things in our world. This isn't saying that there isn't wisdom to be gained in the world, but it's specifically speaking to when it comes to how we respond to life's challenges, hardships, and troubles. How we deal with what we deal with internally. When we face personal issues, when we face marital struggles, when we are standing before a decision that we don't know what to do or how to take things, we have to ask ourselves, will I take this on with faith or with feelings? Will I trust God or somebody else? Will I turn to God or turn towards somebody else? This can be regarding anything. In ancient Greece, there was a philosopher named Socrates, pretty important guy if you study history, the father or one of the fathers of philosophy. And there's a statue of him. You can visit it outside the academy in Athens. He's just thinking. 
We get ourselves in a lot of trouble when we think our way or try to think our way out of trouble. We try to think our way and think how we can face this challenge and face this circumstance. Paul says, you've got a better option than just think. You know a better way than just thinking. How should I handle this? Because your mind and the flesh and the sin is not going to lead you to the right place. It's going to lead you to the wrong place. You know a better option than just sitting there thinking. And it's kneeling. It's praying, right? God forbid we think our way into more sin or we think our way into more trouble or we think our way into more bondage when we have the opportunity to bow on our faces and get on our hands and feet and our knees and say, Father, I am trusting in You. I am surrendering to You. I am rooted. I am being built up and I am being established by You. So I want to get close to the ground where I can tell where my roots are and I want to remind myself that I am sustained by you. So may we be found in thanksgiving and worship. May we be found praying and seeking and knocking and asking, trusting and depending. Maximum freedom is found through complete surrender. Our nature says that makes no sense, but salvation says it makes all the sense. Verse 9 and 10. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. So you are complete in Him, in Christ. I don't care what religion teaches you. I don't care what religious experts may teach. You shouldn't care about what your family tradition says. Who cares what politicians think or your political party says? Walk away from what your gut says, what fears tell you, what he says or what she says. Double down what God says. Who says who he he says you are, who he says you can be. This is super important for days when you don't obey. For when you drift away, when you think rather than pray. Because this even reminds us Even though we wander, salvation assures that we don't have to wonder where we stand with God. God is devoted to His own. We need only be sensitive to what He is doing within us. As a child of God, we can come alive to our true self. In our Father, we find true freedom. We must face every situation every circumstance, every decision, every opportunity, success or failure, temptation or test, with the mentality that we are a child of God, we are free from our own nature, this world's expectation or anybody else's judgment, we are free. Children of God are alive, secure, and prepared for anything that comes their way because our destiny is already settled way past all of this. And we simply ask ourselves the question, how would a child of God handle this? How would a child of God react to this? What would a child of God do in my circumstances? Colossians 2 verse 6 and 7 says a child of God is going to live to move, walk forward because we're rooted and we're grounded and we're being built up and we're always being strengthened. 
Nothing is going to uproot us. Nothing can tear us down. Nothing can cut us off from God. So why would we want to do anything that forfeits our freedom in Christ? Why make filthy what God has washed clean? Why add debt where God has paid in full? Why drag down what God has been building up? Why trade joy for regret? Why bring guilt to where God has brought peace? Why deplete what God has made complete? Paul closes this section off with a few verses that I think we should read in closing as well. Verse number 11. In Him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him, through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses having wiped out the handwritten requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. God has literally performed spiritual surgery on us, as according to this text. He's always working to keep us clean from sin. But just a heads up. Jesus doesn't offer us a chance to redo. Christianity is not a self-help clinic. It's not a rehab facility to get you back on your feet. Those verses do not paint the picture that God gives us a chance to redo or retry. It's better than that. Jesus offers us rebirth. As in, I'm washing the all away, and we're starting over. We're not building on what you have. We're going to tear all that down, and we're going to start with something new. A lot of times, we don't want to let go of all the old, do we? We want to get rid of some old. We want to clean some old up. We want to keep some of it around. Jesus says, you just don't understand how much that old's working against you. How important it is that we get rid of all of it. Verse 12 speaks, to our new, speaks of our new identity, our new branding, our reinvention, our redefinition. And verse 13 tells us the cross stands apart from time. No matter what's behind you, the cross is always before you as God's promise to you. Verse 14 says anything that could potentially leave you incomplete, empty, or judged, forsaken, or forgotten, or afraid, or feeling insignificant... Paul says all of it was crucified. All accusations against you, all sins against God were nailed to the cross. That feeling that just comes over you whenever you see that and maybe for the first time comprehend it. All accusations against us, there is no judgment that stands, there is no sin that stands, all of it has been nailed to the cross. The Holy Spirit passes by our graves of shame and regret and failure and fear. And He says every hurdle, every barrier, every ounce of dirt and stone that has been pummeled on top of you, it's going away. It's a new day. The prophet Ezekiel made a promise that God would give us a new heart and a new spirit. 
He would take that old uh, away and give us something brand new. And that can be true for you. It's true for you if, you're our, if you are a Christian. The message to everybody today is that you can come out of your grave. You can come alive today. Lighter, cleaner, free forever. Complete in Him. Paul says to us, take your first step. Walk. Realize what God has given you, who God has given you, and who He is making you. Believe, receive, come and see, go and live. All the fullness of God that dwells in Jesus dwells in you. You are complete in Him. You are found. You are free. We know that. I know that. Because my Father favors me. You are complete because of Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, you are going to be incomplete and will remain incomplete. The invitation is given to each and every one of us that we can walk out of our graves. We can be lightened of that burden. We can be cleaned of that sin. We can be restored and renewed and revived. We can begin again. We can be complete in Him.